0: Next in Nonprofits, I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Mazarine Trays of Wild Woman Fundraising. Mazarine, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Steve. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, I'm really excited that you reached out to talk about a topic near and dear to my heart in the fundraising and development world. But before we jump into that specific area, can you just uh, explain a little bit about your business? What is Wild Woman Fundraising?
1: Certainly. Uh, for the last 10 years, I've been helping CEOs, founders, and other nonprofit leaders with creating uh, more fundraising revenue through a variety of channels and also through um, supporting their fundraising staff more effectively. So um, I've to do that, I've got a bunch of online conferences and a bunch of online courses, as well as... Uh, working one to one with people and a membership site, so I've been doing a lot of things for the last ten years. Um, but it's been such a joy to see um nonprofits grow and to see leaders grow and you know change as they start to understand fundraising better and also how they understand you know even for board members how to support their fundraisers better.
0: And that last is the part that I was really excited to ask you to talk a little bit more about is I think we see this uh, consistent issue within the nonprofit sector of uh, what's often referred to as burnout within development staff. But I don't think it's as simple as just, you know, gosh, I've been doing all this work for a long time and I'm tired and I need to now go somewhere else. Um, I Mm. think there's a lot more to why people leave development work uh, or they just change to a different job within the development field. But I do think it's a consistent issue that we see with particularly smaller development staffs where there might be one or two people in a nonprofit that do development. Um, and we see transitions in the 18 month or less timeframes pretty frequently. We don't see folks sticking around. So if you hear that question with an executive director you've just started working with or a new board saying, yeah, we want to talk with you about this because you know we've had these three or four different transitions in the last five or six years. Um, where do you begin that conversation? How do you start with those folks?
1: That's a really excellent question, Steve. Thank you. Um, for a lot of us who've experienced fundraising turnover as a, a problem in our organizations, or if you don't see it as a problem yet, believe me, it is. And so the research has borne out, and I'm speaking here specifically about the 30 years of research that Penelope Burke of Donor-Centered Leadership. Um, and the Signet Research Group has done. Uh, she has shown that if you have turnover year over year for uh, three years with your fundraiser, it costs you about six hundred thousand dollars and that is not including lost donor relationships so if you're a numbers person if you're sitting on that board and you're like oh my god how could we be wasting this much money it's not going to show up on your balance sheet but it's just little dribs and drabs here and there from hiring a new person to getting that person up and running onboarding getting them trained on the software um and and so on and so forth um and so even if you have just one year of turnover, it costs 117% of that person's salary to replace them. And if you keep your good fundraiser for over a year, and hopefully longer, they can raise over three years, you know, $500,000 for you. And that's just as an example, they can raise, you know, if you're paying them 50,000, you can they can raise 10 times their salary. So um, that's a huge incentive to make sure that your fundraising staff are properly resourced, and not only properly resourced, but you know, really that everybody understands how they can help support creating what's called a culture of philanthropy in your organization and um unfortunately when you've had so much turnover a lot of really good staff are gonna not want to come to your organization because they see the writing on the wall and they think you know like when you're dating somebody it's not you it's me they they think it's you (laughs) you know what i mean they'll be like oh okay this person can't commit or okay this person is got some personal issues So that is uh, that is something that you would have to work hard in an interview to convince a very qualified person to take you on.
0: So let me ask you specifically about larger versus smaller shops before we start getting into some of the reasons of this, because I'm, I'm more familiar with that smaller shop feel. Um, and I don't know that from the outside, it seems like there's more consistency when you maybe have a department, you know, there's seven or 10 people that are working in development or more, um, that, that turnover doesn't seem to be as high. Um, is that a a correct outsider observation or is it just as bad in big places as it is in small?
1: Um, you know, it really depends on the leadership, quite honestly, and it can be small, small people can keep people for a long time. If the leadership understands and respects and does their part in fundraising, or, you know, they can turn over in three months. And that same is true in large organizations. I worked with a university last year, and uh, it was wonderful to work with them. They they were well resourced, but unfortunately, you know, there were some leadership issues that made people not feel appreciated, and and some people were looking. The last time I talked with them, so, you know, after being there for a year, they're like, "Yeah, it's time to go."
0: Yeah, that's unfortunate when it happens. So I think having a conversation about. Um, You know, there are just going to be natural times when a a transition happens for other life reasons. A partner moves out of town and you've got to go or whatever. But I think more often we see these transitions because of reasons that could be avoided if there was some more intentionality or more thought around it. Uh, One of the things I wanted to ask you about was just the the performance expectations within timeframes as people are brought on board. And um, there's a few different things around that that I see. But I'm wondering, you know, how you kind of approach that conversation the clients you work with around what's a reasonable thing to start with for a new person based on where that particular nonprofit may be in their fund development cycle
1: let me give you some research and some facts steve because i i know that a lot of your listeners are all about research and facts and the bottom line so i've just told you how much money that you lose and how much money you stand to gain if you keep your good fundraiser. Uh, A colleague of mine, Ellen Bristol of the Bristol Strategy Group, uh, she wrote two books. One's called The Leaky Bucket, another one is called Fundraising the Smart Way. If you go to bristolstrategygroup.com, you will have the opportunity to take the leaky bucket assessment on your donors for your organization. I highly encourage everyone listening to this to do that because what you will probably find is that your retention rate is in the toilet. It could be 40%, it could be less than 40%, it could be 30%, 20%. when I say retention rate of donors, I mean year over year, how many donors give again. So if you had 50 donors last year and this year you have 30, you know, you have a, or like let's say 100 donors last year and this year have 50, you have a 50% retention rate, right? Um, and so if that's the same donors that give, right? not including all the new donors that are coming in and so what happens to a lot of nonprofits is they say okay what's your rolodex how can you bring in more people to a highly qualified highly successful fundraiser and what they should be asking is really in those first 90 days how would you start us up with systems to be successful furthermore um they should know what their retention rate is when they go into the interview with the fundraiser so that the fundraiser knows what they're walking into if they don't know that yet that's a problem now according to ellen's research most people flunk this assessment. The one organization that did not, that had a really, really good, like 90% success rate with her leaky bucket assessment was, believe it or not, LDS, aka the Mormons. Hmm. Why are they so successful? (laughs) Because their fundraising team has extreme amounts of resources. In the first two years, they don't expect you to raise any money at all. They're just training you. And that is so far from what the Initial expectations are for most nonprofits, big or small, is to see the curvature of the universe. (laughs) So so that's why when someone comes in, you say you have to raise your salary, they're going to walk out the door again. You need to at least for the first 12 months, and you could follow LDS's example, say the first 24 months, we just want you to learn. And if you raise money, that's icing on the cake.
0: I appreciate that perspective because I do think that often it is this space of, uh, you know, we have this much of a budget hole to fill. It's your job to fill it, regardless of what systems we have in place, how many donors we've had, what grant relationships we have, none of that. It's just it's all about this thing that we want filled, not where are we in our potential to raise money, but where do we feel like we are in our Perceived need for how much we need to bring in the door, and those things need to be looked at independently. I mean, your ability to raise support for your mission and the needs of the mission are not necessarily the same thing. And I think that's where some of this mismatch begins right away. Is I I've got a you know two hundred thousand dollar hole in my budget. You're going to get paid thirty thousand dollars next year, so go raise me two hundred thousand dollars. And that new staffer coming in at you know practically no salary, maybe has no experience, has no Uh, tools in the tool chest, but has a huge expectation on them. And I don't think it takes very long for them to feel like either I'm on the right path and I can do this or good heavens, I'm not feeling supported. I don't know that I've got what I need. I'm not going to be able to succeed. Maybe I should get out of here before they fire me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, to have those expectations, say, just fill the hole in the budget, most professional, qualified fundraising staff would just run screaming. So you end up getting somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. And then you the refrain comes, you just can't find good help these days. And ultimately, you have to ask yourself, do we try to give one person seven people's jobs wrapped in one title? Do we try to expect yeah. them to be good at everything? Nobody's good at everything, right? Um, are we trying to put all the responsibility on one person when it really should be spread out across the organization? Because if we don't bring in money, nobody has a job, right? So all of those things have to be in play for an organization to be successful. It just, it cannot rest on one person's shoulders. That's unrealistic and ultimately will doom your organization to failure.
0: So is that something that you can help with how expectations are both set and communicated to people in your work? Do you kind of serve in that middle ground or or how do organizations best start addressing that part of the problem?
1: I do that work with people. I absolutely do. And in my book, Get the Job Your Fundraising Career Empowerment Guide, I also did research to figure out what are the key questions you need to ask in the interview in the first 90 days, whether you are a leader or a fundraiser to get the most out of your relationship with your direct report or with your boss. And so, you know, a few of those key phrases can include everything from, um, you know, before we leave this meeting, do you have everything you need? Um, do you th- see things here that I haven't addressed yet? As a leader, these are some things that if the fundraiser knows more about fundraising than you do, they'll if they're hesitant to say what that they that your expectations are unrealistic, the, that those two phrases can draw out that what you're asking for is not correct. Um, So, but yes, I, I love helping people. I love helping specifically leaders, CEOs, executive directors communicate better with their fundraising staff and also learn how to fundraise themselves so that they can be a better manager of the fundraising staff person.
0: I think one of the challenges in the fundraising world is sometimes the um, answer to the question of how much um, are we supposed to go raise uh, is this question of just bringing everything you can, we can always spend the money on the mission, there's plenty of work to do. And that sets up this dynamic of not being able to be successful because there's just no solid goal of we are setting a plan in motion that we think reasonably gets us to this level this year and here's how that's going to leverage into the next year and the next year whatever but not necessarily like you've ever met something because the most charities that I've met with and talked with you ask them the question you know do you have enough money well no the, nobody ever says yes we absolutely have enough money this year we're all set uh, that's not a response I usually here. But I think that that contributes to that feeling of, boy, you've never got the the feeling of success. You've never felt like you've done something. If you haven't got a a benchmark for the year that says, this is why we think we can get to this dollar amount, as opposed to, we can just keep spending money if you bring more money in. So go bring more money in.
1: Well, right. And so when senior leadership, including the board does not understand how fundraising works. That's what we run into, which is why I love training both boards, CEOs, and fundraising staff in a variety of, you know, goal setting techniques that allow you to make concrete reasonable, actionable goals for your organization. So for example, again, going back to Ellen Bristol and the Bristol Strategy Group, she has software that allows you to track how long it takes you from identifying a prospect to asking for the gift and shortening and shortening and shortening that time. However, what people don't pay attention to is their prospect pipeline. And so if you, if that's a word that is new to you, you're not alone. When I was presenting at the Minnesota Nonprofit Association Conference in 2018, I put the word pipeline up on the screen and most of the audience just gawked at me. Hmm. And so um, believe me, for a major gift officer, their pipeline is clear. They usually have a hundred people in their portfolio, um, and they have been vetted. And now it's up to us to make case statements for them and you know, like send them out into the world. You know, um, however, comma. The um, vast majority of us ha- do not have a major gift officer on staff and are not paying attention to the right. quality of our pipeline. And that's why you should invest in software such as donor Search, wealth engine, or iWave to allow yourself to understand who is worthwhile to pursue because that opportunity cost is so great. You could chase down the wrong person for months. Um, and what you want to do is just um, say, okay, do we like them? These are the five steps, right, to getting that major gift. Do we like them? Do they like us? Did we yeah. the gift? Did they negotiate? Did we get the gift? Those are the five steps. You could put that on a spreadsheet and go from here. Um, or you could get Ellen software and go to town with that. But the point is that um, if you don't have like qualifying criteria, you could be wasting so much time. And a lot of times, EDs, CEOs, and boards don't understand how to best support their fundraiser. And that's kind of what I'm trying to share with you today.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit more about that pipeline thing. Cause I do think that that's critical. Some organizations I work with where you look at the existing donor base and, um, there's just not enough there to work with yet. Uh, we need more names. We need more people to talk to. So setting up benchmarks as things that are part of your deliverables as the fundraising team, um, to, uh, do the donor acquisition rather than the dollars that come in, I think is such an important part of setting that expectation of this year. We need to meet more people and here's how we're going to go do that, uh, and and um, look at that as a measure of what I was supposed to do this year, even though that may not result in a gift this year. But part of that is about understanding where are the assets of the organization when you come in and if there's just not enough people in the pipeline to start with, then that's where we have to begin, right?
1: That's quite so. That's exactly right, Steve. Um, It's about. Okay, how do we qualify who's currently in our database? You're going to have some prospects in your database. You're going to have some prospects from your board members, and they need to know how they can best support the fundraiser to make those asks. Um, And so a book that I always recommend to people, which I really love, is called. Fired Up Fundraising by Gail Perry. It's a really excellent book. It talks about ways that the board members can support and ask without actually having to ask themselves. It could be as simple as writing a thank you note or making a thank you phone call, or if you bumped into somebody in the grocery store saying, thanks so much, by the way, for your support of our organization. We really appreciate it. And that leads to the ask being successful. So there's good key phrases in there. Um, Obviously, uh, for some organizations that cannot be in person, you'll have to do more virtual, sort of, like, engagement, but in this age where we are doing a lot more virtual engagement, um, uh, we are going to make new strategies to connect with our, our donors. So.
0: Yeah. And I think that looking at how we bring those people into the pipeline, though, and and looking at those tools and the events themselves as parts of the measure of success and supporting that development staff person so that they know, look, we get that it's not only about this, today's gift, but it is about next year's gift and the gift that's coming after that. So we need to put those in as benchmarks that we're measuring and rewarding and excited about when people do and not only you know, here's how much money we need to plug into the budget. So I think that donor acquisition strategy question of not only where are they in the pipeline, but getting more of them in the pipeline, that people that have not yet been connected with the mission is something that should be rewarded within the development world, but doesn't always, I think, end up as a key metric that people are are seeing in their performance reviews about that part of the work, or at least I don't see that as much. Do you?
1: No, I don't, quite honestly, and that's one of the key questions I tell fundraisers to ask in the interview and which people who are interviewing them should have an answer for, which is how do you celebrate what's working here? And that will give you a big clue into what you just said, the organizational culture and making those little celebrations when something good happens like, oh, we had a donor meeting and it went really well. Or, hey, you know, um, we have three people in our pipeline this week. High five. You know, we started out with nothing. Now we have three. Um, so just celebrating little tiny wins um, and giving people, you know, asking them what their love language is and then giving them some aspect of that. Some people love gifts. Some people love words. I'm one of those words people. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So um, just getting to know people better and what motivates them will allow you to give them meaningful praise. Don't just say, good job. Say, I love how you... Dot dot dot, did something very specific, you know. So, um, go ahead.
0: No, I just I think that's so important to recognize because sometimes, of course, the exact flip of this happens, and I've run into this in in my professional life where uh, a fairly large gift, fairly well, kind of drops out of the sky. Uh, I mean, yeah. it really wasn't that we worked on it for years and all the rest of it, but you know, we we did connect with somebody about the mission of the organization we're representing. They were excited about it. we and it was the right time, and they just. Hit a fairly large gift, and everybody's like, Hey, congratulations, that's wonderful. It's like, Well, I mean, I, yes, we did the right things by asking and all that, but the fact that we put fairly little effort into that and got a fairly large gift out of it does not mean that that's how this always happens. <laughs> and if you expect that right. to happen again next week, that's going to be a problem. And we really need to get expectations around most of the time. This takes a while to bring people in, talk with them about the mission, see where they're engaged, all those things before we get to that that larger gift. So I I love to kind of think about that part of the burnout question of why staff turnover so much is that sometimes that part of the work doesn't get recognized and when the flip side of it happens where it's kind of reluctantly just kind of easy all of a sudden for a, a larger gift to come in that can set up odd expectations going forward when people sort of think like, you know, you you've done it once, why don't you do that again next month?
1: Right. Um, and, you know, case in point, when I was working at Clackamas Women's Services, a domestic violence center, um, we got a huge bequest in from a long term volunteer who died of COPD, a.k.a. Constructive, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And she smoked her whole life and she was on a ventilator. That's what happens. Right. We had no idea she was going to leave us her estate. It was wonderful. Um, uh, and it was a boon. But, you know, those planned gifts, you know, they can totally jump out of the sky. It can take 20 years before they come to fruition. And a lot of fundraisers, because of the way that they are being measured, will tend not to go for those because they'll no one in the organization is going to be around when it actually comes in. You know, right. they're not going to get that instant positive hit of you did it you know, so that's one of the great untapped resources of the fundraising sector is planned giving. Um, And so creating that mindset of, you know, how do we manage expectations, make that shift? Um, I would say in the first 12 months, do not ask your fundraiser to raise any more money if they do count that as a charity on top, but just say, look, we want you to know the programs. And if you're hiring them from within, um, growing your own fundraiser, as it were, um they should know the programs already, but now it's about messaging and you have to invest in their professional development to make sure that they know all the things they need to do to be successful in their role as well as investing in you know some mentoring or you know coaching for them and making sure they have all the tools the 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 technical tools as well as the Like the resources inside the organization with people to be successful. Um, If they feel like they're too much put upon, right, they're not going to be interested in sticking around. Um, But if you're growing them from within, which unfortunately, most nonprofits don't do, um, as we saw in the underdeveloped report, um, most nonprofits are like, well, if you've already made a lot of money, you're worth it. But if you're just coming in, and we're training you up you're you're not worth it um and there's like this unrealistic kind of mindset of coming back to puritanism honestly Mm. that it it, rich people are smart and know everything and poor people are dumb and know nothing right so that's why we trust mark zuckerberg to fix like new jersey schools and you know warren buffett to fix or you know um malaria or whatever it is Mm. when honestly you know and this is something that dan palata talked about in his uncharitable books uh, is that uh, we we assume that if you didn't get paid a lot of money your opinion is not valuable and a lot of times all consultants are doing is coming in and saying what the staff have been screaming yes. for 9 months
0: <laughs> no i i think you're exactly right but i think that raises two other questions that i wanted to get at with this burnover or burnout turnover kind of question is um, <laughs> burnover
1: yeah well, <laughs> That's like <a> good
0: one. <laughs> we we've i unintentionally combined those two things but you know we, the, the turnover and the burnout thing are related um but yes. burn, burnout isn't so much i think that the right word, because I do think that it is a, a mismatch in expectations most of the time and not so much I can't possibly raise money anymore, but I can't raise it mm-hmm. here where I don't have the time and the space to do the things that are necessary to be successful. And then everybody you know, doesn't feel good about my job. And that's I don't think that's the same thing as burnout. I think that that's a, a staff member saying, I can't succeed with this situation. I will go somewhere else And try to negotiate a space where i can be successful and you know unfortunately i i see this far too often that somebody you know leaps to another organization and the exact same thing happens in 18 months they're they're gone from there too and then they go somewhere else so there i want to get back to the kind of homegrown what do you want to do when you invest because i think part of that is a natural reaction to not wanting to put a whole lot of money into the development department. And they're like, well, we'll just hire somebody that's that's younger in the workforce, a really smart person, we'll get them trained up, it'll be great. And, and maybe there's some space for that. But I wanna talk first about the idea of somebody who does understand that process, perhaps better than anybody else on staff right now, and how they can come in and negotiate something successfully. You, you, you mentioned a couple of questions that you encourage them to ask, But I do think that part of the burden comes back to the executive director, the hiring board and whatnot, to listen to those folks that maybe are worth a little bit more in salary because they really are bringing that much more experience to play. But you have to kind of trust them and turn over a little control over that space to them.
1: Well, you have to treat them like they are a CEO as well. So if they come in and you want to make them development manager, but they're the sole fundraising staff person you're not showing donors that they should meet with this person, you're showing them, this is how much we value you as a donor. We're gonna have you meet with a manager instead of a CEO or a director Hmm. um, or CDO, right? And so if you wanna have access to those higher level people, you have to give this person the resources just like a high level salesperson. So give them that VP or CDO title, give them a nice office to meet donors in, give them a budget to take donors out to lunch, give them a, a travel budget you know, all of these things. Um, So a lot of what's really holding fundraisers back is that under-resourcing of their program, even if you bring in a very good person. I know an organization uh, that just hired a new person and she doesn't have a desk. (laughs) And... I mean, this is a real thing. She's had her laptop on her knees sitting in the corner. And it's just uh, unreal to me that people can be like, we really want to raise more money and then make this kind of mistake. Um, And so I'm not going to name names, right? But uh, I feel sorry for this person because she's not being set up for success. They have a donor database, which is a place to start. Does anybody know how to use it? It's really difficult. They cheaped out and went with Salesforce. Pro tip. Pro tip don't use Salesforce.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to hear you say you know? that because I want to talk about the tools um, because that, yes, you, if, the tools. if you get yeah. somebody, and I want to come back to the idea of, of growing your own development staff from uh, less experienced people, because I think that's important. But I do want to ask about this because I do, you get that, you know, hey, Salesforce, 10 free licenses, Let you know, nonprofit success pack, let's, let's just go with that. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that um, there's, a balance of knowing what tools you need and which ones to use versus well, we, we have to play for the most expensive Blackboard product because that's the most expensive Blackboard product. Versus, nope. do we need a product that you know this particular team can really? used to do the work that we've targeted rather than just, I know about Blackboard, so let's buy Blackboard versus Salesforce at the other end of it. Um, there's a lot of range in there in tools of what you can pay for in order to support this work. Uh, so I, th- I think it has to kind of go hand in hand with that conversation of how are you supporting your staff as what are these tools that also cost some money to invest in, but not necessarily just for the brand recognition of the tool.
1: hmm Right. So I would not use BlackBowd either. Most nonprofits do not need that. Um, I think you need to talk to a donor database expert. Uh, Robert Weiner is one that I know of who is quite good. If you look up RLWeiner.com, I think is his website. Um, He's done several webinars for me about how to choose a good donor database, what a donor database should allow you to do, what reports you should be able to draw out of it everything from who gave in the last 18 to 24 months to how many people have given multiple times in the last year to, you know, how, you know, to the top number of donors, like the, the top amount that they've given, you know, recency, frequency, and monetary value are the, you know, RFM are the number one things you should be looking at. But on top of that, your donor database should be able to talk with a software call like about like that, that helps you look at who else have they given to and who do we know on our board that knows them? And so that is where IWave, donor search and wealth engine come in. Um, And so I've already mentioned those before. You should decide which one is right for you. Um, But of course, N10 also comes out with a donor database report that you could use as a small nonprofit to see what are the pros and cons of each of these databases and which one should we choose. And ultimately, that's the system that's going to decide some of the success and failure of your program. If you have no database, you should just get that figured out first. (laughs) Um, And then you're going to be setting up your uh, fundraiser for success and 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 again uh free database is worth exactly what you pay for it <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, I Please I do think that, <laughs> well,
1: I think. that
0: the the, the sales force and the, on the flip side of that, the the Civi CRM kinds of tools. Uh, you know, if you've got somebody who just lives in that space and is willing to do it, um, they can be successful. I think that the challenge becomes if if that person leaves the organization, you know, how easy is it for the next person to come in and pick up the free thing, the the you know the Civi CRM mm-hmm. kinds of things. Um, the Drupal-based tools, you know, they work. They're they're fine, but there's a fairly small uh, segment of the professional development world that really knows how to take advantage of those. And if you want the ability to have somebody step in and use that, if there is going to be transition, that's a I think a thing for the board to the lead staff and board to really consider. Um, outside of who is our fundraiser today? Who's the lead development officer today? But what do we as an organization feel like we can really support long term because we don't want to to be switching these databases every time we lose staff?
1: Well, right. Um, And so that's why I wouldn't choose Salesforce because one of the organizations that I know that got it, had to spend a whole year porting their data over and get a year of training for their staff person who could leave. And so that person had to go physically to another location to get trained multiple times, which costs the organization money um, in multiple ways. And then, you know, now one person knows the database and that person could leave, like you said. So really, Um, if I cannot stress this enough, please look at having a consultant come in or looking at the N10 research around this to decide what's right for your exact size of organization, number of donors you have. Once you sign a contract with BlackBowd, for example, they will not let you get out of it. And that was a rude awakening for a client last year. And they really suffered because of it. Um, So, and they don't have that many donors. So um, that said, like, please, you know, just because you know a name, don't assume that that name is right for you. Good.
0: So knowing that part of supporting your fundraising and your development teams is going to be around the right tools, database being a primary one, but there's, there's others. Now that I think that question of, I'm bringing in the more experienced person and we're going to negotiate around what their expectations are so that they don't feel like they can't be successful, Those are great things. But if we do it the other way around and get back to that thing we talked about with kind of growing your own internal talent, you do find that really smart person who's just a couple of years out of college and they love your mission. They're really connected to it. They understand all that stuff. And you think, wow, maybe this person can take on this role and, and do that. Um, You mentioned training and other types of support mentoring. Um, How do you coach through a a decision like that to um, invest in somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience in this yet, but maybe could be very successful at it if they were supported and given enough time?
1: Um, So I was in this position last year when I was mentoring a new development director. And so what we did was I gave her the access to all of my 10 e-courses, which have 119 CFRE credits associated with them. And CFRE stands for Certified Fundraising Executive. Um, I uh, encouraged her to keep track of all of her metrics, to make experiments. And that's really what the first year should be about, is helping this person experiment, not just learn, but feel that they're not being penalized for making a mistake or a so-called mistake, when really it's just a learning opportunity. Um, And a lot of nonprofits do want to penalize people unfairly for, quote unquote, wasting money, when if it was a learning experience, it wasn't a waste. Um, So that's something to think about when you're growing somebody internally, is how much support can we give them for mentorship, coaching? And you know, I had a retainer contract with this client. And so... You know, for a year we worked together. At the end of it, I realized that I should have also have worked with her CEO so that he could have been able to be a better um, manager of her. And and that was my mistake. Um, so at the end, I I mean, at, towards the end, I sort of asked him, could I coach you as well to be a better manager? And he wasn't interested. He didn't want to learn fundraising. And that's when I knew that this person was probably not going to be as successful as they could be or should be in this role. And that you know uh, that person should probably just find another organization where they can. not be successful.
0: Yeah. And that's I, I think such an well, important it, result of this whole yeah. thing is that sometimes that's where it, it comes down to. And and yeah. hopefully this conversation will help other organizations avoid that part of it. So I, I appreciate your guidance here about uh it, it's not just that new person coming in that's going to need the training and the and the rest of it, but uh, the rest of the staff, the CEO, the president, whoever needs to understand how to work within that framework if they've not done it successfully.
1: Well, that's kind of what I keep coming back to. And that's why I created the Nonprofit Leadership Summit because I really wanted to help senior leadership understand this is what fundraising is. Even on a high level, here's how you can be successful and here's how you can support and manage your staff more successfully. Um, Because if one person who's a development director tries to do a major gift program on their own, they're not going to get anywhere. They need the board and the CEO to be on board. And that was what was holding this person back. They had goals, we made timelines, and then um, they blew by because the other, group of people wasn't willing to work with that person. So uh, tools that can help you aside from databases, you know, include knowing your your e-newsletter software, knowing how to make graphic design in Canva, for example, uh, knowing your website software and, you know, knowing now in this age of virtual meetings how to do a successful online donor meeting. And I would recommend Zoom. Um, It's one of the things that I've had great success with. It is um, it's becoming more and more available all the time. And uh, I've used other things like GoToMeeting and GoToWebinar and so on, but I prefer Zoom. And, you know, this is something that, you know, you as a CEO or nonprofit leader can have sort of state of the union addresses with people who are worried and who can't leave the house right now, you know, Um, and say, hey, you know, I just want to check you in and like make you aware of things that we are doing to continue to use your donations in this time of great change. Um, So uh, that's actually one of the things I'm going to start writing about is how to have better online meetings with donors. And um, that's something that people should really start hiring for people who can create better online community.
0: Yeah, so I should mention that we're recording this uh, sort of right at the beginning of the COVID nineteen pandemic stuff. We we're just in this time of huge uncertainty. Everybody is social distancing or or working from home and whatever, and it is changing the nature of how development works pretty substantially. You know, if you're listening to this six months later, who knows, uh, right, who knows? Know what the world is going to looking like. Uh, much further into this, but it is, uh, I think, that question of who are you hiring to do this work, um, you know, I, I think successful development staff, in my experience, tend to be, you know, pretty good utility fielders, right? I mean, they're, they're folks that can manage a little bit of, you know, Canva here and um, communication software there and do a database over here and just be good in a meeting but it's hard to look at a resume of somebody who's not done this before who wants to transition into the work and go oh yeah you you can be successful at this uh, i mean that's a very difficult thing to know who are you going to grow into this role with your organization if they've just not done it yet do you, do you have any tips or tricks on on how to help people both decide whether they might feel good at doing this work cuz not everybody does but also who could be successful in that in that space
1: um, yeah. And, you know, what I would suggest is have people take the StrengthsFinder test, everybody in the office, take it so that you can see where people's areas of genius lie, because everybody is really good at one or two things. And then you can't just be like the stellar, you know, um, like neurosurgeon and uh, classic car restorer and ballerina and, um Uh, like incredible chef all in one person. And that's kind of what we ask our fundraisers to do. So if you identify a need inside your organization, and this is where a consultant can really come in and help you say, look, here's your fundraising plan. Here's what you said you wanted to do. We know the most successful way to fundraise is individual giving. So you create an individual giving plan that like meshes with your communications plan. And if that's the case, you need somebody who's a really good writer, who can help you long-term message to your, or like the groups that you want to message to and help you get really specific and clear with stories that speak to them. Um that's my specialty. That's what I love to come in and do. Um but then you need someone to take this relationship to the next level and they probably have to be, you know, on staff, a major gift officer, actually leading people through how to build these relationships and maybe going to meetings. You know what I mean? If yeah. they can yeah. and if they can't online You know, so um, growing somebody internally, I actually have an ebook on this called Your Nonprofit Leadership Career Path, which I'm happy to share the link with you. Um, But I created this after like four years of doing my online conferences on um, careers and helping people move on up in their careers and fundraising. Um, And it's really here to help you look at what are the specific fundraising tasks you need to be good at? What kind of personality do you have to have to be good at them? Um, and looking at, you can be way more specialized inside an university setting, for example, than you can in a tiny nonprofit. Um, and so seeing what's going to make you personally happy and then knowing where to slot people in. If somebody says, I love databases, that'd be great, but they're probably not going to be a good development director if that's all they love. Right.
0: Well, I think that's a really interesting thing of, you, you can't be an absolute stellar expert in every one of these areas, but I do think that looking for that uh, ability to adapt and learn to some degree in some spaces, uh, I've got one of the clients I work with is really good in meetings uh, with potential donors, um, you know, he believes in the mission, he's great talking about it, all the rest of it, will not use a uh, a, a database form for the life of him. Just absolutely watch the stuff that's more work on my end. Okay. Um, We we go in and we understand that, that if you're going to hire somebody who's really good at that part, then they're going to need support from somebody else on the team to do the database or the Canva thing, right? Where I'm a horrible graphic designer. I just can't do it for the life of me. So I know that about me. And I know I have to hire other people to do that part, even though for them, it's fairly quick and easy. But for me, I just never feel like I do it well. So I just know I'm a pretty good utility player in some of these areas, but not that one. So I I think we're we're running a little low on time and we're going to have to wrap this pretty quickly. So I do want to ask you to um, kind of think a little bit about if you've got that homegrown person coming up and you've given them that first year, you start seeing some of these things emerging. How do you then continue to support them moving forward as they start to get into the more meat and potatoes of the role after they've had that learning thing, you know, while still saying it's okay to to start having some expectations at some point. I mean, you do have to produce sooner or later.
1: Right. So ideally, this person is good at building relationships. And if that's the case, then they need major gift training in that first year. Once they get that major gift training, they should be working alongside um, the board and the other senior leadership team with that training so that they know, okay, here's how I'm going to slot you into this piece. And here's, how I'm going to fit into that piece. And you know, this person's going to do the research. I'm going to go out and make the ask. And then we're going to come back and we're going to create you know, a, uh, a strategy to get this gift over a period of three years, for example. So, We have a pledge um, and uh, we're going to make a compelling case statement for this person. So if you want to know the number one way to fundraise, it's face to face fundraising. It's the thing that works better than anything else. Everything after that is a diminishing return. So getting to the place to build those relationships is year one. Um, And then year two is working those relationships. And hopefully by that year, you're having those in-person meetings if you haven't already had them in the first year and you're saying, okay, great. You know, we've talked with you about what you want to see happen in this organization. We've made a project we think you could get excited about. Now it's time to make it happen. What do you say? Let's put your money where your mouth is, right? I mean, it's not as crude as that. But it certainly is what you're essentially saying, even in a nicer way. So I mean, having those expectations will be simply like, it's not and I have this thing called the beyond cash dashboard, which Peter Drury put out for my online uh, conference as well, which is how it's not just about how many asks did we do? It's about how many touches did we have? It's about how did this fit in with a greater strategic plan? What did I learn from this? What did the team learn from this? And you know, how did I grow professionally? And that's some things to also measure uh, in the first year and after.
0: Yeah, and so much more that we could touch on if we had another, you know, hour and a half to talk about, uh, you know, how institutional giving fits into this, different from individual. Because I do think that that's a uh, another challenge of where some of this uh, turnover happens, is people want you to be the best grant writer as well as the best uh, major gifts officer and etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but we really do need to kind of wrap up right now. So I just want to acknowledge uh, uh, my gratitude for your time to talk about this and ask you to tell people where they can learn more about your work.
1: Oh, yes. Thank you so much, Steve. So you can learn about my work at wildwomanfundraising.com. And that's woman singular, not plural. Um, there is also mazarinetrays.com and, um, I am very excited to connect with anyone here who wants more information about how to make the most of their fundraising capacity and messaging during this time. I'm very excited to chat with you. Um, so thank you so much again for having me, Steve. I really, really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. We'll have those links in the show notes. And I just want to say, uh, Trays of Wild Woman Fundraising. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you.